the depths of the Akasha, I re-emerge. You may call me the Akashic One. My purpose here is to create fractalized fragments of the conscious content contained within dominant yoga. When a body of work becomes so dense with occult truth, the psychic resonance attracts the presence of ancient masters and sincere seekers in equilibrium. For all with ears to listen, Dominant Yoga Radio and Waking Life Podcast present Esoteric Audible Fractals Episode 1. A long time ago, people figured out that, like, there were these certain aspects to human nature. And they could be summed up in very specific ways. They could be summed up in these ways that were so subtle that they could only really be grasped through a system of metaphor and analogy. Like, these are v- principles of human consciousness that are so subtle that they can only be grasped by... uh careful, slow study and meditation. And that maybe it's like this, like the connection is when we recognize that we are rooted in our bodies, you know, and that the brain and all this stuff that's going on in the brain and is connected to all of this uh, spiritual stuff and all the, all the thoughts we're feeling and the, like you're saying, the personality doesn't the personality have a lot to do with how my physical body is made up and how I relate to the world around me based on my physical body? Exactly. I think, I wonder if you are, uh, you know, a chimpanzee, if you just relate to reality differently, you just have this different body. And I've always related to certain animals like dogs and me get along real good. And I wonder, what is that? Is that just the way I smell? Is that just the way that I'm built up by nature? Um, And yeah, I know I'm being silly, but it just seems like so much of reality is based on this principle of no self, that you are the spot in the universe that is not everything else. And everything else is the spot in the universe that is not everything else. So you're really made up of everything else not being you. And it's like this, uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, That weird paradox is supposed to be a good way to get connected. Yeah, it's a very classical uh, philosophical argument um, as to the nature of the universe and God. Yeah, it's that mystery. It's all wrapped up in the mystery of no self. So anyway, that's just one symbol. So what I'm saying, is it possible to use, is it possible that a lot of this um, occult stuff, especially the more secret things, there may be ways, tried and true methods of altering the human brain and body for the better using symbolism, ritual, meditation, all that stuff. Hmm. That's what I'm kicking over here. Yeah, that's it's definitely a possibility, and it's already kind of happening. Um, as far as us having now systemized education, almost worldwide, uh, there is a form of 
education that is thought to be the proper form. You know, it's it's and it has its flaws that we could discuss about in, in countless episodes. But really, it's what it represents is human beings trying to figure out how best to make themselves better and to systemize it. Right. Um, so it's it's happening. It's just slow. The wheels turn real slow. <laughs> That's what's happening. Um, but it's happening. And we are uh, we are getting better at all these things. So meditation, for example, is being incorporated into schools more. Um, and we've spoken about the, uh, for example, at school in San Francisco that had a uh, they incorporated a meditation 15 minutes in the daytime and then 15 minutes in the afternoon, uh, right before and then after classes and just like 15 minutes where everybody just shuts up and sits down and cl- breathes and closes their eyes, you know, yeah, it's powerful. That, that's automatically going to send you into kind of a meditative state if you, if you're sitting there for long enough and like <laughs> for sure. Right. <laughs> so it's like 15 minutes is a good amount of time for these hyperactive kids too, you know? So it's like, and like even one minute feels like a long time for a lot of people that I talk about meditation with who's grown. Like they're like, man, even 60 seconds. Like I'm, that I'm blows my mind, dude. Sometimes it I'll does. sit there for an hour, dude. It's pretty wild. Like sometimes yeah. I'll sit there for an hour and just, go into the twilight zone. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's so easy too. like, that's what blows my mind is that the whole thing is, it's really just a kind of falling asleep and not falling asleep. Like, like you said, I mean, it's just about getting relaxed enough to where, and, and not having so many skeletons in your closet that you can like open up to yourself. Right. You know, I think that's a part of it. Like, but really that thing, <laughs> this fear of, uh, the deep relaxation of like a trance state or a meditation state. It's definitely a thing a lot of people have, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's gotta be because the spirit world is like right there. It's like the whole, that whole level of your being is somewhere you can spend a lot of time and it's very interesting there. And it's very, uh, it's very important to go there. That's where all these weird writer people, that's where all these people who make up like weird works of art and things like that that are really amazing, that's where they go. They all spend all that time in the liminal realm where you think, I mean, when you're like deep in your own imagination to where you're basically tripping out on your own thoughts and you enter <laughs> into some sort of alternative brain state where you're basically in a, uh, you know, a trance that that creative rapture come on that's a totally a version of channeling that's why people in ancient times were like yeah the muse gave me this the goddess gave me this that's why they said that stuff because they had these weird experiences of like tripping out on their own thoughts and 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 thinking of the iliad <laughs> that's like what used to happen people used to come up with these things like on the fly really good over time and they would remember it and someone else would remember it and then they'd like spit it back and forth and work it was uh there's definitely these moments if you've been creative where it, it you know you altered state indeed 
<laughs> it does get pretty weird once you once you're out there man it's it's like being in outer space but you're in your living room or or even the bathroom you know on yeah the airplane. that's what i mean is that that's that weirds people i see why it weirds everyone out but i just yeah. i just think that that's where everyone who does this interesting kind of stuff and who like um really sets the the bar high all these cool people that we all look up to and from the past i think they all went there and i think that's one of the places that connects to all human beings from from now and until way back and it always will be that way like in in the sci-fi blade runner future people are still going to be having this experience of their own mind and recognizing that it's like this 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 uh, alien encyclopedia it's the weirdest thing ever having a mind um it's this real synchronicity it's this real like trippy thing that connects everything together and it's very strange that's what i'll say about being a human being with a mind it's very weird that's true right isn't that just scientifically true <laughs> that it's weird I, th I would say it's phenomenologically true. That's what I would say. Explain what that means. Uh, it's like the study of like experience, I guess. Yeah. You know, the study of the having experienced the phenomenon itself. Like, so like smelling something that it's like, okay, I could talk to you about the chemical process of, of olfaction and how there's these chemicals that bind into receptors and then it goes down the nerve and all this. But that's not – that doesn't tell you about Smelling. the experience. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. So yeah. why is it phenomenologically – phenomenologically? How would you say – what's that word? <laughs> Sorry. Phenomenologically. Yeah. Phenomenologically weird. Why is it weird, human consciousness? Um, because we have – it's weird when we compare ourselves to other species because we seem to have a, a few extra layers – in yeah. some ways, uh, almost literally, because of the cortex, uh, we have uh, and the cerebral cortex, the parts of your your brain that uh, are really more so recognizing patterns and, and integrating memories with your movements and your uh, all of the and, and your worldview and and uh, processing intention and, and goal directed behavior. Um, so all that, uh, all that whole level, all of that kind of stuff is all is possible because of our uh, advanced cerebral Whoa. cortex. So that whole level of consciousness is flowing through that one part of our brain. Yeah, that big, big, juicy network of cells that you see when you uh, open up the the brain. The first thing you see once you get past the little layers of skin there too, uh, underneath the uh, skull. Ew. <laughs> Ew, you're being gross. <laughs> I, like, I just had to give you a little anatomy. <laughs> so the first, but, uh, so all those juicy cells on top, you're saying, or the first layer of the brain? Those layers. There's six layers of the cerebral cortex, but you see that. Ew. You know, the, the, all, like the wrinkly, all the wrinkly uh, parts that you see on the uh, the surface of the brain, the gyri and the sulci, those are uh, all the, uh, that's the cerebral cortex there ew it's it's cool though i like it but it's kind of yeah. gross in you a picked fun up, you, way did you google it yeah that's what it is no i'm not looking that's, at it i can't do it right now okay yeah uh, but, but um 
That's great. You know what I'm talking about, though. That's great. So it is weird. So, yeah, it's like, it's almost like this is all in a God's mind, and it sort of is just creating more and more perfect things and trying to get to some pinnacle, and that maybe the human being represents the highest level of being in this particular range of experience. We're not gods, but we're spirits. We're from the higher world. The human being is more than just an animal. But we have an animal body that we make use of. But by our divine nature, we make up the most complex and perfect animal body that exists on the earth. And beautiful as well. We make it up because of our divine nature. That's why we're so different from animals and so different from the natural worlds there's a lot of similarities but in those huge ways those just huge gulfs that are the differences between the human and the animal world that's the difference between the divine world and the physical world it's a it's as above so below as below so above in that case the exact amount that we are different from animals is the exact amount that the spiritual world is different from this world and I mean, not literally, it's just a way to look at it. It's just a system of, it's just an analogy to sort of meditate on and have your own insight. So if we were all aware that there was this treasure chest, we all wanted to open it. We really wanted to open it. Then we would start all fashioning keys. And so that's why you have different systems by different teachers. And like, for example, I'm a student of uh, the work of Rudolf Steiner, a student of the Rosicrucian Order Amorc, and I'm uh, still pretty new, but I'm a very serious student of Builders with Aetitum, B-O-T-A. And I can tell you for a fact that there is a deep similarity between all of it, but it's totally different. Nobody's comping off of each other, not in any, any blatant ways. It's all very different. All very different. I mean, they'll even use the same terms in drastically different ways. They'll define things in ways that are contradictory to one another. But, but that's because they're fashioning a key to open the chest. They're trying to open the sacred treasure chest. And the sacred treasure chest, and they all would agree on this if they were in the same room, is clairvoyance it's second sight it's recognizing that our thoughts are somehow the spiritual world and then having a type of thought that is totally different than the normal type of thought we're used to intensified raised to the next level bigger than the regular thought that we're used to on this whole other plane so it won't just be the normal thoughts that we're used to it'll be something way beyond all that that's totally amazing. So if I think about these three different systems, which I take very seriously, because I consider them all Rosicrucian and on a cultural level. They're all culturally Rosicrucian things. Uh, and so there's definitely a sameness about it. There's definitely points of view that are equal but just different, you know, different steps along the path. That's it. Different framing of the same deeper wisdom. So that's super interesting. 
The only way that could be if these systems are authentic is if the thing we're all studying is the same. See, if we're all faking, then there'd be more, there'd be more division. You could say BOTA is uh, magical. You could say Rudolf Steiner stuff is theosophical. And you could say that Amorc stuff is sort of Pythagorean. But then there's this other thing where you'll be at a moment and study and you'll go, oh man, that's the same exact thing as another thing. But it's just literally different terms, literally a different entire way of getting there. But it arrives at the same conclusion because the goal is the same, which is to open. To open the chest. So everybody's trying to fashion a key. Everybody's trying to fashion... uh, A way to open it. And so what they all know... The fourth level is what they all realize is that... Because this is what this is. There's first level... You believe everything you're told. Second level, you realize it's all a lie and you start questioning it. Third level is when you step onto a serious path of some kind of philosophy, whether it be religious, semi-religious, occult, whatever it is. When you really start seeking and you recognize the non-duality of spiritual knowledge, that's when you're on the third level. Fourth level is the level that you and I are never going to get to and is reserved for people who are truly here for a cosmic mission, the highest level of masters. Most of us will be nothing more than great students of people like this. The highest level most of us are going to get to as seekers is going to be a 3.9, and we probably won't get to that. But we're all level three. We've all stepped onto the path with authenticity, and we've decided to take it seriously. And we've taken it seriously for long enough, and we've proven enough of its reality to ourselves we have faith faith enough to persevere and we should have by the time we get level 3 derive some very real benefits from it but the people who fashion the keys the difference between the people who get to make the new stuff up and those of us who are meant to study it and maybe share it with others but still just students all the rest of us We study the keys given to us by the people we recognize sort of instinctually as the masters. And expertise, it's weird. It's like they say you can't really respect expertise until you have enough knowledge of your own. So it takes years, in my estimation, to start figuring out who you should listen to and who you maybe shouldn't and where you should put your time and where you should be studying and where it's kind of like you know more of a distraction it takes years to gain 
context for occult things. Esoteric context is not easy, it's hard. And that takes years, and it, it's going to take... I know I keep saying it a lot, but I always mean it when I do. It's going to take literally reading dozens of books. When you get up to 30 occult books, you start to really get the picture. I don't mean to put that weird 33 thing on it. Because that's something you should never talk about, by the way. If the number 33 chases you around, don't say it to anyone. Don't speak of it. Just listen. Stop. Now, it isn't if you see it three times, but if you start seeing it 10, 12, 15, 20 times a day, I'd say if you get anywhere over 10 or 12 times a day, when you start seeing it like crazy, don't talk of it. Don't speak of it. Don't say anything about it. Stop. And watch. Stop and watch. What are you doing right now? What is the frequency of your life? What is the unique defining characteristic of this moment as far as your personality goes? Who are you really being at this moment? What is it about you that has drawn this attention, this good divine attention? What has drawn the raven to you, my friend? The being that welcomes you into the inner circle. into the college, the invisible college. Stop and watch, what are you doing right now when you're seeing all these 33s everywhere? What are you doing? And not physically, not in the outer world, don't look there. Because that's part of it, but it's really about something very subtle. Something deep has changed. And whatever it is that you've changed in that time when this starts happening, whatever it is, that has changed, don't speak of it because you can't. You can't speak of it. You can go up to your friend and be like, hey, dude, I'm seeing the number 33 everywhere. Like everywhere, dude, it's crazy. And he'll say to you, oh, yeah, tell me five of them and you won't remember. So number one reason not to tell anyone is because it's something that's only going to mean something ever to you. But the other reason is because what it means is that something's changed. And the raven is perched on the tree outside of your bedroom. And it's the most beautiful animal you've ever seen. And it's inviting you to experience the mysteries firsthand. It's inviting you to take the hero's journey. Right? So, stop and watch. Look at what you're doing right now. In a good way. And duplicate that. And don't stop. From here on out. Whatever that change is. It's unspeakable. You could barely name it. You might call it something like faith or courage. But that's the closest you'll get. But you don't speak of it. Just watch.
Because like Paul Foster Case said, the reason all this stuff happens is because we're in the mind of God. We're in the mind of a deity, and that's why there's weird things like that that are possible. And when it happens, you'll know it. You'll be so... It'll be so clear that you won't, uh... You'll know that it's authentic. Because it'll be so over the top. It's got to be way over the top, by the way, for it to be the real thing. Just my opinion. But I think it's got to be way over the top. It's got to be everywhere. Like a crazy amount of times. And at very specific moments as well. But I'm sure a lot of you know what I mean. So those of us out here on the third level, we're just trying to grasp the truth of this stuff. We're just trying to understand. We're just trying to get it. We're just trying to not be the disciples getting berated for being too superficial and say, okay, I hear what you're saying, but what does it really mean? So if the grand goal of all these systems, if the reason they're all connected and they all have this similarity, if the reason is because they're all seeking the same thing, What does the Philosopher's Stone have to do with second sight? What is the mystery of eternal life in the Philosopher's Stone? What does it have to do with a sort of always-on, semi-psychedelic, altered state of consciousness known as clairvoyance? What does that have to do with one another? See, those are just my questions. Like, I'm legitimately asking that. So I've said it before. If anybody knows, please call in. Tell me. I want to know. But I have some ideas. That's what we're going to do on the show today. I have some ideas about what it might be. So to sum up, if the real super psychic guys like your Swedenborg, Steiners, and Casey's, the esoteric Christian Holy Trinity, I'm sorry, the new Trinity, sorry, I meant to be blasphemous, excuse me, the new Trinity of modern saints, or people close enough, let's go for it, uh, they were all hijacking the sleep system in order to perform this visionary ecstatic experience, right? The ancient people, the ancient teachers and the wise ones, they taught that the spiritual world was sort of all around us. It was like what made up this world as above, so below. They knew all about this. Somewhere along the line, somebody figured this out. And it's definitely true that a lot of the modern occult teachers thought this as well. That what's going on with the human mind is we are the spot right in between. The reason hermetic knowledge is so sacred, as above, so below, is so vital is because it's true. It's true. What it means is 
because we're in the mind of God, because all is a mind, like it says in the Kabbalion, our minds are unified with that energy. The very nature of the Creator, and this is definitely a big part of uh, Christianity, the very nature of the Creator is that there's this invisible essence to it, this almost sacred geometry that creates everything. Divine mathematics, the laws of nature. However you want to visualize the invisible force that structures and sustains and orders this physical part of the universe, this visible force of the universe. But the visible forces are indeed governed by relationships that are invisible. This has been apparent for a long time. And it is thought in many an esoteric teacher that this means the human being is right between these worlds. We are microcosmos, partially. Part of it is because we are the ones who are right between the spiritual world and the physical world. Steiner said that it's almost like a part of the spiritual world dips down into an animal body. That's a human being. And it gets sort of closed up in that body for a while. And then it goes back one day. And then comes back again. Then goes back. So it all seems to be based on hijacking the sleep state, activating some sort of alternative view of life based on this different physical and brain state, body and brain state. Kingdom of heaven is within all that. So basically, more or less, second sight... It is, yeah, it is about opening your chakras, I suppose, but it's also about physiologically teaching your body to go into a deep enough trance and keeping your mind awake enough. It's also that on a very fundamental level, at least for these types of spiritual practitioners. So maybe that's why some, some esoteric teachers say that there are certain types of meditation that can uh, charge all of your chakras by doing them. Like perhaps the four establishments of mindfulness in Buddhism would charge all of your chakras if you did them. In harmony, in balance. Maybe that's why some people say that. Alright, so I'm going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to go through some texts. We're going to go through uh, the Emerald Tablet a little bit by Dennis William Hauck. That's H-A-U-C-K. And it's called uh, the Emerald Tablet. This is a great book full of meditations you can do. And it's like 600 pages. Or no, it's about 400 pages of great knowledge on this Emerald Tablet. He really breaks it open. And we're going to look at uh, Rosicrucian Wisdom by Rudolf Steiner. One of the lectures he gave on the force of imagination and compare them in a little bit of ways and talk about more of this stuff we're saying here about the deeper meaning of the imagination. So just think about reading a great novel. 
something you truly got lost in. Maybe you got to go back a little ways. But can you try just just a little bit to remember? Don't try too hard, you know? You don't want to push it too hard, but... Do you perhaps remember a feeling... Almost like the world of the book was around you. And I mean not just in your fantasy. But did you ever get a sense of a sort of pressure? Like if you're in a room and you're reading the book and you say it's a book that's a great story and you read like a lot of it in one day. Say you read for some crazy amount of time, like six hours straight. Not straight, but you know, in like an eight hour period or something with a couple breaks just for food. You went right back to the book. Let's say you do something like that. You ever felt a sort of pressure around you? Like almost like the book is coming to life in a sort of very real way, like Now, do you remember that being a sort of a hypnotic, sort of trance-feeling state? How it was almost like your vision was not directed at something in your eyes, or that your eyes were seeing. It was almost like your vision was directed at something invisible. And this place you were looking while you read the book and were so in tune with it. This place you were looking was actually the spiritual world. That's what it is. That's why novels, fiction comes in writings. And scripture does too. Because comes from the same source, the mind, which is the spiritual world. But that feeling, that writer's trance, if you're a writer, where you're creating a story and you get super tranced out and it's like you're looking at it, but, and I mean this physically, you can feel it maybe next time. It's like you're looking at something. When I've written, that's the dogs moving around on the back, pardon us. When I've written rhymes and rap songs in the past, which were, which were all right. They would sort of come to me fully formed. Oftentimes half quatrains or quatrains would just sort of appear mostly formed in my mind. And I specifically remember in these really creative states, and it often happens, the same feeling happens all the time when I do this show. That's, I'm being kind of mysterious, but it's definitely how I do the show a lot of the time. I do go into this like trance thing where I just talk this way. It's really weird. I mean, I'm conscious of it. I'm doing it. I'm choosing to, but when it's good, that's what it is. (laughs) When it's good, it's just this, uh, it's almost like this, my higher self is talking. Um,
That's almost a tough revelation for me to like deal with for a second there. Something you know, something you already know, but then you remember you know it like it's the first time. So that feeling you had when you were looking at something, especially when you're being creative or you're reading a book. Now, the reason it's a book and not a movie or a video game is because a video game has a visual. It's when you don't have something to look at with your eyes except symbols on a page that you have to create into a visual. It's the specific act of creating from the page a visual in your mind. You see where I'm going. When you read the Bible or you read a text that is designed to initiate you and believe that they are, things like the Gospel of Mark and many of the authentic letters of Paul are designed in this way. For example, the Gnostic Gospels are definitely designed in this way. The Gospel of Thomas is undeniably designed in this way. Reading them is supposed to initiate you. Reading them is a way to enter occult realms, spiritual realms. The literature itself is the gateway to the spiritual world. That's why every occultist worth anything usually has a pretty intense library. Because spiritual concepts actually allow you to literally penetrate the veil between here and the spiritual world. It's actually the concepts themselves because they themselves are from that world. And this living experience of these concepts is a big part of it. For me at least. This is just my opinion, obviously. Based on my own study and my own experiences, this is a big part of it. That recognizing that your thoughts have this incredible power. And when when you hear that in this context, I hope it gives it a fresh meaning because we've all heard your thoughts create your reality. We've all heard that again and again and again. But maybe we haven't heard it from a, a cosmic enough perspective that your thoughts create your reality, dude, not because you're creating your reality with your thoughts, but because your thoughts are the freaking spiritual world. Your thoughts are way bigger than you. Your thoughts, your nature... It's connected to something way bigger than us. It's actually connected with everything. And so your thoughts are the spiritual world, and that's why they're so important and so such a big deal and why they create your reality. Maybe that's more humble. Maybe that's what's missing for a lot of people with that doctrine, that new age doctrine. And we do also know scientifically that negative thinking is worse for your health. And positive thinking is way better for you. So it's certainly real on multiple levels. But the promise of second sight, that really is what it's based on. If I had to tell you, if I had to sum up one thing, if I was talking to a new atheist about this, which wouldn't happen, but if I was, if I was speaking with someone on that level, I'd say, well, really, dude, if I'm being totally 100% honest, what this is all about is the promise that we can get psychic powers and a new type of perception and peer into realms that are hidden to normal human beings. That's really what it's about at the end of the day. And you might say, well, don't people who take psychedelics get that? And we say, well, yes, sometimes if they're one of us. But anybody can take that stuff and see things. But making use of it and making it into the real thing is a whole other thing, which you can't do just with that. 
You need both if you're going to do it that way. So, yes and no would be my answer to that question. But I tell them, no, but the real level does seem to be these guys, like the highest level guys. They seem to be able to do it totally clean, more or less, with just hijacking their own sleep systems, with just altering their own brain states and entering into what they consider to be the spiritual world naturally. Purely in the spirit. And so it's very interesting, man. In the early church, they had a lot of talk about this Holy Spirit stuff and that there was a spirit that would come to people and guide them and the spirit of prophecy. And St. Paul said, it's good to seek spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. It's good for you to prophecy. He wanted people to practice prophecy. Not some special dude in ancient times as a prophet, but you, as a regular guy, you be a prophet. Go ahead, try it. It's cool. He saw it as a thing that you could do. Prophecy is one of those code words for gnosis, for occult knowledge or esoteric experiences or paranormal experiences or Gnostic experiences, enlightenment experiences, insight and with a capital I in Buddhism. So you're supposed to try to have these trippy mystical experiences. That's a part of being religious. That's a big part of it. Prayer is supposed to go so deep that you start actually summoning beings. <laughs> pray in secret, right? So pray in secret. Go super deep. Super deep into yourself, into a super deep trance. Go to the secret place. And you'll see crazy things. It's all about hypnagogic states. Which is just the result of deep, deep, deep meditation. So how do you get good at it? You just meditate. And that's why Buddhism is the best religion. Because it will give you everything. If you practice that like basic old school Buddhism that Thich Nhat Hanh teaches. You'll get super good at going into a deep relaxed state. And that exact muscle that you train from that Buddhism. That will give you the ability to do some hypnagogic stuff. Like I said that's what I did. That's why I love Buddhism and I put Buddha up there as the master of masters. I mean, I see Jesus in a different way, so I don't I don't compare him like that. I don't have a hierarchy. I just call him what he is, the master of masters, the wise one of the wise ones, the teacher of teachers, the one who gives every system back its heart. Right? So Buddha will teach someone of any religion the truth about their own religion. As someone who got back into Christianity because of my trek into Buddhist wilderness, it wasn't unnatural. I became interested again. I became curious. I became curious about it. But what does Buddhism actually teach you? It teaches you to take your inner self, your imagination, and charge your ability to direct it. So you breathe in and you become aware of your body, meaning instead of using your imagination to think about things that are not here and now, things that happened in the past or that might happen in the future, instead of doing that, all you think about is your own body and you feel your own body and you do this for long enough, your body starts to feel tingly and warm and energetic and you feel happy naturally. 
and you start to smile. You start to just naturally smile, that quiet smile of the Buddha statues that they so often have. So your body floods with endorphins. So it's literally training your imagination muscle. And then you focus that imagination on your feelings. Then you focus it on your own thoughts. You turn it back in on itself. And then you recognize there's a part of what you think of as your imagination that's actually above your imagination. There's a part of your imagination that can watch the other part of your imagination and direct it. And that when you were being creative, when you were in that creative trance, where you were looking into a world that was not quite physical, but was here. That's when you are using that higher imagination. You are using that part of your imagination that is not you. That pure and true creativity. This is why the ancients considered it a muse, considered it a goddess that came to them and gave them the inspiration. I can tell you as somebody who goes off on poetical rants, it is entirely a subconscious action. It's really about your will and your desire and your purity to allow such a thing to flow through you and it just happens. All I have to do is make sure that I continue to study and try to be as good of a person as I can every day and meditate and really practice cognitive discipline and really transform the parts of myself that I'm still not happy with. that are still shameful, right? And really work hard at it. All I got to do is that. And then when I sit down in front of this mic and I put my intention to doing a show, I'm going to make a show. That's the way it works for me. That's the honest truth. It's not like I don't have to work for it. I got to work really hard for it. But what I'm saying is when it comes, it's almost like it's not me. It just happens. And I don't think that's special. I mean, I watch Joe Rogan like I'm sure a lot of you do. And it's clear that this dude can just make three-hour shows like it's nothing. It's just a muscle that he's learned to flex over time. But as far as making this kind of show and talking about this kind of stuff, that's how it happens a lot of the time. It's just this weird subconscious thing that happens, and I'm sure that's common. So when you're being super creative, dude, and it's flowing, and it's flowing into creation, like the creation is happening, when you're in that state, you're looking at something. It's not physical, but it's there. And that spot is probably the beginning of what they're calling the first matter in alchemy. I don't know for sure. I haven't been told this. This is just what I put together on my own. Meaning I'm like in orders and stuff. So I'm just saying no one's tapped me on the shoulder and be like, hey, by the way, the first matter is actually your imagination. I don't think anyone ever would do that. It's more like something you should you have to figure out on your own. But it's not all of your imagination. If you do your four establishments of mindfulness, you start to recognize that there's different layers to it. Because it turns back in on itself, and it's on itself. You start with the body, then the feelings, then the thoughts themselves. And you go, wait, if my imagination is not quite my thoughts, if there's another part of me that creates the world, that creates, that does things, that does action. Because that part of you that does action, that's your imagination with a capital I. 
That's that higher part of it. And so always when I say that, just think back to that time you were reading that novel or you were being super creative and you were sort of looking at something in that artistic creative trance. That something you were looking at, that was inspired. That was the spiritual world. That's why so often creatives like like me, who I did acting when I was really little and I did music for years, I mean, that's why creative people tend to get into the occult. It's not a matter of like, oh, divine creatives. It's not like it's a superiority thing, but what it really is, is uh, that we literally are practicing the action of looking into the spiritual world because we're practicing it by sitting alone in a sacred space. So a sacred space would be anywhere that you spend a lot of time channeling this sort of energy. So any artist, uh, typically someone who's been an artist for years will have a space. Will have some kind of space where he or she has been doing this sacred act of channeling this divine force for years, not knowing it, just being an artist. So just the act of creating art or creating at all is the flowing in of this sort of third eye energy, this spiritual world energy that is the same as your thoughts. It's very specific. I'm not talking about something that's abstract. Next time it happens, hopefully you remember this and you think about it like, whoa, that is kind of a weird thing. Where does this raw creative energy come from? I get the subconscious mind and all this stuff, but that is a mystery. And it's worthy of, um, it's worthy of veneration in itself. It has a sort of sacredness to it that the ancients, that's what they had that we didn't have. They venerated that part of themselves and they knew it was a big deal. That there was a part of their imagination that was not them, that was connected to the spiritual world, that was flowing in from above. As above, so below. That's how they realized they were making these things in the world that they were creating was by this power. All right, so coming to us from... Mr. Paul Foster Case, this is uh, Esoteric Keys of Alchemy, a book I love. Uh, Esoteric Keys of Alchemy by Paul Foster Case. This is pretty crazy right here, so I wanted to share this with you. Uh, this is mercury, this is sulfur, mercury, and salt. Sulfur or brimstone burns easily and has choking fumes. It has been associated for centuries with the fires of hell, with the seething passions, which those fires typify. Mercury is liquid and flowing, and the surface of each globule of this metal is a mirror reflecting its environment. Its rapid movement, like that of a living creature, accounts for the name quicksilver, in which quick means both living and rapid. As we may see from the French... I can't read all that. Salt crystallizes in perfect cubes, which have been types of earth since the time of Pythagoras. And its property is to arrest dissolution, or or disintegrative, disintegrative chemical change. The quality of sulfur then is fiery and passionate. That of mercury is vital and reflective. That of salt is arrestive and binding. So basically, sulfur is desire, the desire force. Mercury is intelligence or wisdom. 
and salt is inertia in the human personality. That's what he says here. I was super struck by that. I think that's completely legit. So I was wondering, you got your sulfur, which is your fiery... Let's see, what's the symbol for sulfur? I learned all this today. Sulfur is that, that cross with the triangle on top of it. So you got your sulfur, which is your desire force. Your fiery, hot, reactive desires. Your ambition. Right? Like the part of you that wants things. Part of you that wants to do things. The part of you that pushes and makes you want to create in the world. and makes you want to change the reality around you into something else. The desire force, the pure desire force. And of course, when this is negative, what is it? It's addiction. It's obsession. It's mania. All of those types of like extreme states that are connected to extreme desires. That would be too much sulfur. There's too much sulfur in your diet, homie. There's too much sulfur in your spiritual bodies. So then you have salt on the other end. And salt is like the opposite of sulfur in that way. Like it's inertia. So when you meditate, you're definitely pouring salt on the sulfur, right? And you're trying to go that way. And there's a certain importance with stillness. If you're not still, you're not silent. You can't really get in touch with a lot of things. So there is this importance to that. But then inertia, doesn't that sound like depression doesn't that sound like sadness grief when you've got too much salt in your aura you got too much salt in your soul is that when we get weighed down and stuck like i will be honest man i was for the first time like the first major time i was really blocked with this podcast this week and having this knowledge it doesn't exclude it doesn't um you know guarantee that i'm not going to get stuck here or there now there were just things in my life it was just a cycle it was all karma it was all beautiful in the end and it was all purposeful but I definitely, this whole time, I'm like, wow, there's there's this element to my life. There's just too much inertia. I just can't get the desires to fire through. And then I realized a few days into it that it's like something to do with a time where meditation is more important. Where I need to go within... And allow this energy, allow this flow of quietness to take over. And it can't be output all the time. It can't be just constant output. Sometimes you, you got to stop. And just stop. And I may, maybe I was pushing myself a little too hard. And it, it uh, the wise higher self said, look, you got to stop for like, you know, a week or so. You just got to stop. So then we got Mercury, which is intelligence. 
And I like this idea of intelligence with a capital I, where you take mindfulness and you take all these insights into the mind that we learn from occult, occult knowledge. And you take that and you apply it in one sort of one sort of brush stroke, and that is intelligence with a capital I. And so if I think of myself in terms of these desire forces and these inertia forces, the out and in forces, the output and the input forces, and I think about that, I think in that act, I'm using mercury to deal with sulfur and salt. In the act of thinking about my desires and my ambitions and comparing them to my needs as far as stillness and silence and rest And I'm thinking that as I'm contemplating these two forces, I'm using mercury. So it's weird because it always seems to come back to this basic idea that mindfulness is everything. That the real essence of everything is mind. Like the Kabbalion says, like Buddha indirectly was saying the whole time. This is all inside of the mind of deity. This is all some sort of really weird thing, man. It's this really odd situation, this human life. And out of everything we can do, out of all of the stuff we can do, it seems like one of the best things, the most important things is just to watch. To be mindful. To use Mercury. Mercury. Isn't Mercury Hermes? So is that what's going on here? When we really get back down... When we really get down to it, there's only one... There's only one path. Which is some sort of modified Zen. Some sort of... Zen meets shamanism. And all the stuff we talked about today, I mean, when you start thinking about the prophets and how they got into their altered states and they accessed other realms, and then you think about the remote viewers and how the remote viewers are just doing some type of new version of prophecy. And the Rosicrucian 
conspiracy to create science. To me, the thing that connects all of that is the practice of mindfulness. There has to exist in all of that some sort of higher spiritual perception. I mean, you can't... I mean, obviously, if Ezekiel wasn't good at meditating, he could never have induced the altered states of consciousness necessary to have those visions. He'd have had to have some version of it. It might have been prayer. It might have been a type of mantra based on prayer. But he would have had to use this fundamental mercury. Let's call it Hermes. So what is it? What is that mystery? I mean, is that the part that's God? See, that's what I think it is. I think just my opinion. I think the reason we keep coming back to this mystery, this mystery of mindfulness, we could call it, which is that when we're mindful, we're basically representing the true state of reality, meaning this is what the deity is doing. The deity is being like a perfect Buddha in a perfect moment that's eternal. The deity is is existing literally in the eternal present moment. And so when we practice this very ancient type of meditation, it's like people have said that if you just do that for long enough, your whole aura, your whole energy body, all your system of chakras, it gets charged up enough that you become clairvoyant and entirely other realms of possibility of, of, of experience open up to you. And of course, this happens by degree like anything. So you get tastes, you get to try it before you really get all the way there. That's where people like, like me and I'm sure a lot of, a lot of y'all are, are at. We're on the way. We're still walking the path. I got to look a lot more into alchemy. If anybody knows about alchemy, please call into the show. Please teach us, man. If anybody knows about alchemy and wants to talk about it, please call in. You can go to dominateyoga.com and click on the call in button and it'll be all the information you need. Yeah, because I really want to learn more. Now, this is just Paul Foster Case interpreting one of the one of the many aspects of alchemy. And his big thing was... Combining yoga and alchemy, seeing alchemy as a sort of yoga of the West. So this is coming out of that. I mean, that's his 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 method. But it really is true. Like if I had just sat down in these days when I feel like I'm creatively blocked, quote unquote creatively blocked, if I just sat down and applied the methods I know that work for changing the consciousness... It would have worked. It's almost like I needed a vacation. And I let I wanted to let uh, the rains go for a second. But I did try to make shows. So there was an attempt. But it, I can see now that it was almost like I just didn't have the right combination of inner elements. And that I could have done things. I could have engaged in activities that would have created the right balance of elements where those elements would have been balanced enough in the in the proper proportions to where I could have made a show. So I get it. I think I understand the basic idea now of alchemy, of inner alchemy. 
is these parts of yourself and what you're able to create in the world. These things, they really, there is an inner psychic science to it. There is an inner laboratory where we can add more of this or subtract more some of that. You know, we can do these things internally. And so I've always been a big picture guy, right? So I get into mindfulness and Zen because Zen covers the whole energy body. When you do proper Zen meditation, a lot of people say you're charging up all of your chakras. You're charging up your entire energy body equally. So that's the best way to do it. That's what some people say. So I've always been real into that for that reason. And then there was another time where I had a pretty wild mystical experience where I heard the words, everything is mindfulness. Almost like a whisper from the intelligent designer. Everything is mindfulness, and I've been stuck on this for years. And mindfulness seems to be attached to this idea of intelligence, this idea that, like, conscious awareness of the other parts of the self. And when this occurs, it's kind of obvious that, like, you are more a a certain part of yourself than the other, so you are more the watcher than anything else. And then you start thinking, wait, what is the watcher? And so if you get into something like esoteric Christianity or Kabbalah or something that's emanation-based, some Gnosticism, you start going, so all these guys are talking about this system of emanation in the universe where you get the Godhead, the deity that's at the very tippy-tippy top and then everything sort of emanates and gets more and more simple and yet complex it gets lower vibration but at the same time more more diverse more different and the further you go up the closer to deity the more it's all the same so how does anyone know that there must be an essential energy there must be something in the universe that we're all looking for. And the best word for it is the force. Because the force, as far as I know, that's just an idea from a movie. So we can take that idea and we can really apply it to like the true mystery of what we don't know what it is. But it is God. It is God, but it's somehow connected to ourselves and to nature. What did they call it in ancient Egypt? The Duat. The Duat, the realm of the dead. The realm of the dead wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just the realm where dead people go and they hang out like spirits. It was the realm of future creation. The realm of the dead was always with us. It was, it was with us when we were alive and when we were, we died, we didn't die. We just went to another realm. And so it seems to be that the Egyptians, one of the big the big things because if I don't know if anyone's noticed this all the people who are into esotericism out there are listening to this every single one of us is super into Egypt anybody notice that we're all super into Egypt so what is it there's many things that Egypt seems to have just given to religion 
right, all around the world, especially those of us in this modern tradition, right? Um, and they seem to have been really good at this stuff, really good at hypnagogic states, uh, because the sort of experiences I'm I'm get, just getting into this, but the sort of experiences that they had are fairly universal to anyone who's experiencing this sort of state, like shamans. You know, this is also where shamanism comes into play. You know, most shamans don't take drugs every time they talk to spirits. That might be a misconception some people have that most shamanism is like dudes who can just talk to spirits on their own. They don't they might use drugs, but uh, they don't necessarily rely on them. To them, the spiritual world is more of like a reality. Um, Maybe not always, but that's how it, it goes most of the time. So it's like there just seems to be a weird little key to accessing this realm and i think we figured it out dj tandem i mean we didn't discover it we just for you and i in our journey we've come to this place where we're like oh do you feel me (laughs) right right because we're like oh that's how they all did it and now of course what's our first thought is we gotta we gotta do that (laughs) yes we got to start doing it like the ancient Egyptians. Do you see what I'm saying? Like that's, it makes so much sense. Remember how I was saying, I don't know if I said this to you or on a solo, but I was talking about how, when I do rituals, I I go, I get kind of sleepy. Do you remember that? Did we talk about that? Yeah. And now that all, that totally makes sense. We did talk about it. So that's some sort of like, okay, that's what you have to do to make the ritual work. How do you manifest the magical, esoteric, occult experiences, the paranormal experiences. How do you do that? Well, you got to kind of drop your brain vibration a little bit, a lot bit, but you got to stay awake. So if you're doing a ritual, the really interesting thing is that, especially when you've done it a bunch of times, because that's how it happens to go at the lodge. I mean, it's stuff that I've done many, many times again and again and again. So now it's kind of by memory and... Because it's it's just enough activity to keep you awake, but it's the room is dark. It's it's slow. It's meditative. You know, it's designed to put you in a meditative state at the same time, and that makes a lot of sense, bro. That makes a lot of sense. If it's all about getting into this, what are we gonna call it? Theta? Are we calling it theta? Well. <clears throat> Uh, I think it's just easier to call it a hypnagogic state. Because All right, good, because that includes many different it's, frequencies. Mm-hmm, it's, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Exactly. So if if because does that make sense to you that if you had a ritual designed properly, um, what it could do? I mean, if you as the as the person doing the ritual, if you did it correctly, what might happen is you would enter into a sort of low-level hypnagogic state where you were still able to get up and speak and move. I mean, because there are people who could do this, right? Like Edgar Casey would dictate volumes, you know, while he was in a hypnagogic state. And uh, Abraham Hicks' character we talked about as well. Oh, yeah, the, there you the, go. The lady that channels that So there that are people entity. that could... <clears throat> That can act and do things in a so it is it is possible. Correct me if I'm wrong. Scientifically, it is possible to have a hypnagogic state during activity like a ritual. 
Oh yeah. And I'd imagine it's it's almost like a a flow experience. You ever been doing something that you're really good at, and then it's almost like time slows down. Sure. It's like that. When I make this show, sometimes I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I, I really Ooh. do. <laughs> I really do have. I really do completely lose. I lose all sense of self many times. I don't remember the things I say. I don't actually listen back to the show. Um, I sort of, at this point, know if it's going well or not, and if it's going well. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just put it out as is. Um, but there are many times when I'm not conscious in the normal sense. I'm just sort of like there's just language flowing through me. And um, it is things I mean. It is things that I think are true. It is things I agree with. But a lot of the time when I make the show, I feel like I'm watching myself make the show. Um, And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. I think a lot of people who make shows like this feel that way. But that's definitely a weird one. Um, And... It may very well be true that there are times I'm doing the show that I start sort of entering a sort of trance state. I've had a couple of people message me and say the show puts them in a very trance state. It it makes them sort of zone out like they'll do some sort of thing like clean up the house and put on the show and they'll just completely get zoned out and just lose themselves in it. You know what I mean? So is that what we're doing, DJ Tandem? Are we playing around with these brain states all the time? Is that is that why art and and especially this is a sound medium? So if if it's true that the binaural beats things, it has to go in through the ears. Yeah, that's the only way we can do that. Yeah. So it doesn't work like by smell. You can't do like a smell version of that, can you? Well, you can. In, I mean, you can make people inhale chemicals. You know. But you can't really do it the way that we have a binaural beat where you just put on the headphones and it no, changes the brain. No, that's a specific thing. To sound. To, yeah. It has to do with sound. And is that because sound is really like raw vibration and it translates really well to the brain? Um, yes. Not only is it just raw vibration, but it's also uh, important perceptual information. Interesting. And you can't block it out too. Like you can close your eyes, but it's hard to close your ears. In the you same cannot way. close your ears. No, that's they're made so you can't close the vaginas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think, well, you think about it when you look at something, you're usually zooming in on it. You're usually looking at something. Correct. Right, but when you hear, you hear everything. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different reality, hearing and seeing. It's a great. It's it's super interesting that auditory perception is great it's interesting yeah i'm really i mean that's why i don't video this show because i'm i don't want it to be video i really think this show like now that we're talking about these brain states i'm more convinced of ever like why i've always felt this way as a creative decision that it's something it's a quieter thing it's something you want to go off you know sort of on your own and have this experience of of going to this esoteric place with us and on this journey of of information and of, of esoteric knowledge. I mean, it's sort of like I want it to be this a little more personal and also preserve a little bit of mystery. You know, I like it. I like the mystery of just these floating heads in space that speak things. I love it. I mean, I love audio books. I love uh, audio entertainment. I'm an audiophile, definitely. No doubt. Um, and um, it's, so, it's so so beautiful hearing and the way it all works. 
And that's fascinating to me that you need to go through the ears to have this very beautiful effect on the brain. You know, that is something about hearing and listening. Um, so let's see, is there anything else we want to talk about to do with hypnagogue? Oh, this is, was the big thing. Get ready for this. So tell me something crazy you've seen when you went into a hypnagogic state, DJ Tanner. Um, well, again, the craziest thing I've seen, you already told us some cool stuff, so no pressure. Yeah. Well, let me think of something else real quick. Cause I've seen a lot of stuff this week. All right. I'll tell you what happened to me today. Okay. Um, and this is me really. So I said before I've done this, but I've done it spontaneously. I don't think I've ever made a practice of doing it on cue, so to speak. So I think I've done it dozens and dozens of times. I'm pretty sure. Um, cause it all sounds very familiar. So today I realized my technique for going into a hypnagogic state is just very, it's very, very simple. Um, all I sort of have to do is, is read something that's really spiritual, something super esoteric. If it's, you know, like I, uh, today it was this great book, shamanic wisdom in the pyramid texts. Um, and you get to a point with certain learning where your mind is getting blown so hard. I mean, like your mind is getting the most incredible journey. It's simply just launching into all these realms of reality that are um, special, just so special and unique. And then my what will happen to me is I'll really just zone in and then I'll get to a point where it's kind of like a little meditation, a little trance. And then I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this. I'll go into the, and I did this deliberately. I've done this deliberately many times. It's how I induce many meditations. I've been doing this for a long time. And I said, Hey, wait, if I just focus a little bit more, I can probably do this, use this as the hypnagogic induction. And I, uh, I was only able to keep it going for about four or five minutes if I had to estimate. And then what would happen is as soon as I would fall asleep, I would wake up. Does that sound weird or what? Um, when I was trying to do the hypnagogic state, if I would go too far and fall asleep, I'd wake up. And so that would sort of spoil the whole thing. So I was very motivated to not fall asleep. And what kept happening is I would dip in for a few minutes and what I would perceive is a child in, in a dark wood, in like a, the woods from almost like a fairy tale or a storybook. Sort of just looking around very patiently, not afraid, but almost like he was trying to figure out where he was and is just basically trying to orient himself. Anyway, it was very trippy, but that's what I kept perceiving, having this sort of vision of this young boy who was uh, trying to find his way in this dark wood. Uh, very cool stuff and it kept happening so I went in probably about three times you know and it was always that that's what I kept coming up is this sort of and there were other things that happened but I just I can't remember them because I was too I was too gone and I can't recall a lot of it but there was other stuff but that's what I remember very clearly what I brought back Mm. from it almost like to say you've arrived but this is you you're a little, you're a little child trying to find his way in this dark realm 
this this realm of the shades and all I could perceive was the little boy surrounded by sort of shadowy shapes and figures. Nothing clear, nothing defined, nothing nefarious. It didn't feel evil, didn't feel scary whatsoever, but it was just very clear. This is what's happening. That's So it's like the level of my perception in that realm, at least in this particular way, is uh, like that. That's what I got from it. Fascinating uh. stuff. Yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah, man, it, it's that that's craziness. And it, <laughs> that's my favorite kind of experiences, bro. When the meaning is very clear, when the meaning and I'll say that when the meaning comes off very simple, very clear and you get it and you go, oh, all right. And you know where to go next. You know what to do next. You know what the what the message is. To me, that's solid stuff. That's where it's. That's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 wild, man. Because my experience was somewhat similar, and I got a similar message from it. The one where I was floating above the earth. So, I'll, I'll tell the story again briefly. Like, I was. I came home one day. Uh, <clears throat> I was uh, probably in my. I don't know. I might have been like. Nah, I think I don't know. It was like maybe a couple years ago, three, four, four, probably four years ago. Anyway, I was meditating, right, and it was late at night, so I was about to go to sleep. And I was probably meditating for about five minutes when um, I basically, in air quotes, got in the zone. And after being there for like another five minutes. And like, you know, like, and, and bouncing in and out of the uh, awake and sleep state in a way, uh, I felt like in a way I awoke and above the earth. It was like a flash and I'm just there, right? And uh, and I had no intention of going there. I had no intention of like desiring to see this. and But I saw it and it looked, it looked real as hell. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. And I was, and I, I felt, and I didn't feel the temperature or anything. It didn't feel cold or anything like that. Like there was no, it, 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 it felt almost, I guess, ethereal is the best way to describe it. Like, you know, the sensations I felt were more, I could tell they were psychosomatic. Like my brain was, was there, if you could imagine it, or my spirit or, or my consciousness, whatever. But my body was still in, in my room. And uh, and I felt next to me like this presence, like you know how like when you close your eyes and you somebody sitting next to you, you like that you still like feel next to you, like and if they get up and even if they didn't make a sound, you like feel a difference, you know? Yeah. It's like it was like that, like it was like this kind of that sense that there's something else occupying this space that is alive and conscious and is aware of you like <laughs> like it kind of it, it, and it's and so and here's where it kind of gets like a little crazy because like this all this is happening right and i'm looking over and i look over at this motherfucker <laughs> i look over at this person or this entity yeah yeah <laughs> and uh and it, it's it's this dark like 
all I could, I just remember it being this, uh, a silhouette, we'll call it. It was like a dark silhouette, like in the shape of a, a hominid, two arms, two legs, one head, like shape of a man. Um, but it wasn't, it didn't say anything, but it, it like, there was some, there was like a, a thought pulse that I got from it, basically, that was like, you know, it's, you could, it's basically like the message I got from it was that you could experience this all, you could experience this, like the the world is yours, basically, like the, but that, but there are things beyond your knowledge that will always remain that way. Yeah. Wow. So like the message is, and I think many esoteric people who are modern have realized this, that we are in the age of ultimate knowledge. Like we could, we can individually know more than pretty much any human beings before us. Uh, and we have the ability to specialize in very weird, obscure fields and be very specific in our interests. And there is a voluminous amount of information we can learn in regards to those like very specific topics. Um, and that is some sort of divine revelation in itself. Like, that's a great miracle. So, I think just the basic information age thing, I know we take it for granted, but I mean, dude, my life, dude, I love these these books. These, I mean, these books that I have access to, it's crazy. It's crazy stuff. I mean, you look at every great, like, uh, uh, spiritual teacher from back in the day, and you're like, what if they had all this? I mean, oh my. You know, the things we have, the things we have access to, all the knowledge of science and philosophy and literature and all this. I mean, goodness, all this history, everything. So, yeah, there is like, to me, there's always been this real heavy influence towards hardcore study of the information because this is special. This fact that we have all this stuff. Um, so let's, uh, that's really, that's really cool stuff. And I think. Oh, let me tell you this, because just to finish this out, and then we're going to get into Egypt. Um, I read this Steiner lecture recently. I talked about it on a previous episode, but now it makes so much more sense in this context. He said, there are two times of the day. He first said that most of us think there are two states of human consciousness, waking consciousness and sleeping consciousness. And he said, there are two other states that we don't usually notice but are very important. And this is him talking in like 1908 or something, right? So think about this. He goes, the two other states of consciousness are when we're falling asleep and when we're waking up. And he says, those are the two times when it is most easy to communicate with the world of the dead. He says, when you're waking up, it's a good time to re to receive information from the dead. So if you wake up and you stay in your wake-up state longer and you stay receptive, so you might hear certain things. You might actually hear a phrase that you can then meditate on and will reveal itself to be some really great information. And he says, when you're falling asleep at night, those are our times to send knowledge to the dead, to give knowledge to the spiritual world. So what about that? I mean, it sounds very clear that this man was aware of, of what we're saying here. Yeah. And it's, it seems as though they've been aware of it for thousands of years. Exactly. And that, that's what blows my mind is, is mm -hmm. that the oldest culture is known to us. 
had this as as a part of as a central part of their everyday life and culture. And how and, incredible and is that? How incredible is, is that that it came and it comes all the way down to us through through modern people. Like modern people still know this. This is some truly ancient knowledge, is it not? Yeah. I mean, wow. First of all, the great one of the great mysteries of the occult, one of the great secrets of the occult, which is not a secret anymore. Which is as it should be. It's God's will. Which is that the I am within us is God. It's where God comes from. It's where the idea of God lives. Without the fact that we are this way as human beings, we would have no, we would have no concept God. We would have no monotheism. Monotheism truly is the God of the individual. That's why when Akhenaten made war against the old gods of Egypt and he tried to replace the Egyptian religion with monotheism and he was rejected were his work overturned the reason probably was Akhenaten as many traditions western esoteric traditions throw back to him as being this great initiate way ahead of his time the reason it was a problem is because it was individualistic in a more egalitarian-minded society, so it was rejected. But the monotheistic God, the God that is everything, is the God of the individual, because it's a God that you can understand. And it may not seem like we can understand it, because the whole story has always been that it's unknowable and it is it is unknowable we are limited in our ability to understand by the fact that we are human beings so in that way the ultimate creator of everything is unknowable but there's this idea in ancient times it was known as Thoth, or Toth, I don't know how you're supposed to say that ancient word, pardon me. And I call it Christ. And it's a sort of intermediary between us and the unknowable divine one. So Christ is probably a more monotheistic version of the same thing that Toth was in previous ages. One of the things that is definitely true is that Christianity and the Christ myth draws on a lot of stuff that came before it. And we do not benefit as esoteric students from rejecting that lineage. Like We only benefit from embracing it. It makes all the stuff make more sense. So you look at more ancient traditions and you see the idea of a being that's this intermediary being between us and the higher worlds. And then you see how the Christ being turns into a monotheistic version of the same thing. 
So instead of Toth connecting us to the pantheon of Egyptian deities, we have Christ who connects us to the one hidden father deity, the hidden divine masculine creative force of the universe. We have one deity that this one avatar connects us to. And to me, the best way to prove to yourself that this is true is the, the meditation that we just went over on to some level. I mean, you got to learn it and do it on your own and make your own version up. But you get the point of it. Which is that there's layers of awareness that we have. And the thing is, when you get back to the I am layer... When you get back to that layer, what happens is uh, it becomes infinitely reflective. You can become aware that you are aware of the part that is watching yourself. You can become aware of the part that is aware of the part that is aware that you are watching yourself. It goes on infinitely. And everyone works like this. This is how all human beings function. So on a very real level, this is some kind of proof of a mystery. And it's an ancient proof. And it's not one that can't be argued against and, and that some brash debunker can't come around and attempt to conquer, but it is one that, if engaged with, is undeniable. If we engage with it honestly and don't have prejudice, it's undeniable. The mystery of consciousness, especially self-consciousness, is the great mystery. And we love the mystery. We recognize that we're having a subjective experience, not an objective one. And we're fine with that because we recognize that most of life is subjective experience. That's what we consider life, at least. If we have it pretty good in a civilized nation, then we consider life to be the stuff of subjective experience. And so any system of order, this so-called Christ knowledge, this Christ consciousness, if this appeals to our subjective sense of reality, you know, in a sense that it improves our perception of things and it improves our ability to be wise and to act gracefully. If we become wise as serpents and harmless as doves as a result of this uh, subjective experience, then we're using it correctly. And there's a real value to it. There's a hard value to it. There's a verifiable value to it but the only way is to engage seriously to engage very seriously in the discussion in the inner discussion in the outer discussion the mystical path is indeed a team sport but it's also the most individualistic thing that there is and the monotheistic god the idea of the all 
the essence that is hidden, the hidden creation, creator, sustainer of everything, the laws of the universe as a being. That. That's what we come to know when we go into that deep meditative state. So as Deepak Chopra points out in his book, uh, The Third Jesus, what's going on with Jesus is Jesus essentially has God consciousness. Like he is acting as if he is the deity of everything. And not in an arrogant way, but in a way where he's channeling something higher than himself. And he says in the book, Chopra, he says in the book, he goes, you can kind of go around and you could do everything as if you were God. So what would a divine, loving God of perfection and light do if you just went through a whole day doing that from moment to moment, thinking to yourself, what would the God of the universe do in this situation? If you just do that all day then you'd be the son of God very good right very good point and that's not exactly what he said but he pointed out the God consciousness thing and that Jesus was basically a guy who had the meditative discipline to imitate God imitation of the divine It's trippy, right? Because then it becomes something you can do. <laughs> That's the whole issue with this way of thinking. Um, the original reason we had an orthodox Christianity was in order to get rid of people like me who want to have their own version of it. That's based on a truth that I think is very valid. And I think if you go on the same journey and you'll arrive at a truth of your own that has a lot of correspondences. And that's what I think we should all do. We should all write our own gospel in our own hearts. And so the thing is, if Christ consciousness is really about this Toth Hermes experience, Hermes Trismegistus experience, where it's a divine being and it says in the Bible at the baptism of John the Spirit of God came down into Jesus so there was a moment before that also there's a lot of reason to believe that that baptism was the culmination of a long period of training so what the story really means esoterically is that when after Jesus had undergone a long difficult training period where he had perfected himself to the highest degree where he had become a Buddha Jesus had mastered himself to the highest possible level and at the moment he was baptized by John the baptizer the spirit of God entered him So at the culmination of his long period of training and learning 
and perfecting his own being. He experienced the divine possession. The Spirit of God came down into him and then he had a whole different way of looking at reality. And he started some sort of movement. And the exact nature of the movement is very mysterious. Nobody quite knows exactly. But it had a lot to do with the fact that he had this experience after a long period of training as a prophet, as a mystic. He gets an initiation ceremony that unlocks something in him and then he goes on his mission. At that moment, he is divinely possessed. The first thing that happens in the story is that he's taken out into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. A final test of his worthiness of the spirit, of the Christ spirit. AKA Hermes Trismegistus level two. Hermes too, like a super saiyan. So Christ is just this evolved version, more evolved monotheistic version of the same being. And it enters into this guy. This is the story of a great initiate. One of the things I think is true, this is just my opinion, of course, but I think the real story, uh, the more historical one, the more seemingly deceptively mundane story about a Jewish peasant revolutionary who derived this incredible transcendent philosophy from the wisdom traditions of his times and his own mystical experience. I think the story of the real guy is far more inspiring than the deified man, God in man's form. I, I feel it, honestly. What inspires me is the real story of the real guy, as close as we can get to it. And that story is one of a great initiate, of someone who probably noticed the thing we talked about at the beginning, that there is this I am, this sort of part of us that is wise and watches over the rest of us. And if we empower it enough, it can somehow order us and create us anew. He knew all that, and he knew much more. But this is the kind of guy he probably was. And to me, that's much more inspiring than him being the physical, fleshly embodiment of God. Because we know for a historical fact that there was a huge disagreement in the early days. Is he something we can be? Or is he something we can only worship? And obviously here on Dominant Yoga Radio, we're very firmly on the side of he's something we can be. Something we can imitate. And even a little bit of imitation creates a totally different type of human life. Imitating this being. This is why we have to study and learn what his real nature was like. 
Because imitating this being even a little bit is huge. It's incredible. It's mind-blowing. So he has a mystical experience. And most likely a series of mystical experiences. Because he's been training with John the Baptist. Now this is a little controversial. But. There's also a lot of evidence for it. That Jesus was clearly a student. Of John the Baptist. And perhaps other apocalyptic and messianic. And esoteric Jewish traditions of the time. As well as he could have easily been influenced by Egyptian spirituality and Hellenistic anything. There was so much around him at the time. But he was a peasant. And he may have only had access to Judaism, which in that time would have definitely been influenced by everything. So he could have been some great, you know, traveled, learned scholar. Or he could have been a local. I'm not sure on that one yet. But if he was a local, John the Baptist would have been somebody to go to. He would have been, he was definitely a really famous teacher. There is the uh, historian Josephus, who was uh, around, who was a contemporary of all these people. And he wrote about the time. And he was the official Roman historian. He was basically a sellout to the Romans. And he was writing with a very, you know, careful style because he didn't want to offend the Romans and so he definitely wasn't the best source he did deceive a little bit but there is a lot of truth and a lot of things that can be read between the lines one of the things that Josephus said was that uh, a king King Herod had John the Baptist assassinated because John the Baptist was this incredible prophet who everybody loved and his sermons were inspiring people to sedition against the Roman state. So it clearly says John the Baptist was some sort of political, spiritual guy. So his whole thing was some type of Judaism, some sort of prophetic, mystical Judaism, where you would go to the river and he would give you a baptism and preach and there'd be all these rituals And on some level, that connected back out to a outward message of change in the society. Because people don't know this, but at the time, things were very bad for the Jews under the Romans. They had a, a, a very corrupt um, Jewish power structure. Their own like rulers were really, really corrupt and really stealing a lot from them. And so they were taxed to the extreme and they were all basically kept in poverty because of the way it happened to be structured at the time for the, because of the way society was, and basically. So this whole thing comes out of a really struggling, suffering, impoverished people. People who have every reason to be upset with the Romans, basically. And so Jesus very well may have been 
a student of John the Baptist. And that's why John the Baptist is the forerunner and all this. So he gets... Truly, he gets initiated by John. And John was renowned. Renowned. He was the greatest teacher. When people wrote about him later, they said he was the culmination of the prophets. He was the greatest prophet. That's what they said about him. So this was Goku. You know, this was the greatest of the great. And so what's very interesting is that it's at this moment, at the culmination of all this training by the great prophet, by Goku, after all your training by Goku, the greatest of the greats, you get the final initiation, the final ritual. And at that moment, you become possessed by a new type of consciousness. And what would this feel like? Well, it would probably be immense and perfect mental clarity where that I am part of you, that we as regular beings, we can only really get into that state when we're in meditation because there's so much instinctual behavior necessary for getting through a regular day. But imagine if that deeply meditative awareness of that I am awareness Imagine if that were connected to to this idea of like that's God and that's the Holy Father within and all that. Imagine if that was really connected to that idea and it was always on. It was always turned on. And so you're going around with this perfect awareness and the awareness is beyond you. It's some sort of telepathic metaphysical power. In no way am I saying this was all psychological. Jesus was some sort of super psychic. When I've compared him to Edgar Cayce, for example, the comparison is meant to say that like a person who's having this experience, like a Jesus-type experience, is what we would call today one of these very psychic people. One of these people who everybody goes, oh yeah, he is psychic. We can't really explain this one away. He is psychic. Um, This undeniable display of telepathic ability. And there are indeed many times in the New Testament where Jesus is portrayed as being telepathic. Um... So imagine you travel to where the great spiritual teacher of your time lives and teaches. You become his student. You become his greatest student, perhaps his, his, what's the word I'm looking for? His protege. You become his protege, his successor. And maybe the Gospels are written in a, a, they're slanted towards Jesus. Maybe because this was an argument back in the day of was Jesus actually John's successor or not. But, just imagine that that's what's intended. That the deeper idea 
is that John the Baptist was incredible. And he was a great spiritual prophet and a political revolutionary. So his successor was both of those things as well. And to me, the man, that person who would actually do stuff like that, it's way more inspiring. So there is one big caveat here, though. Is that in order to recover what I think is the, or at least some of, the real meanings of the Christ consciousness, is we have to use other traditions. Specifically, my hero, the Buddha, is the one who taught me everything I know and may be able to understand the mystery that lies behind all of these things. I would have never realized that I had an I am if it wasn't for the Buddha. The Buddha pointed that out to me. And the original Buddha, of course, taught that that didn't exist, ultimately. And it is true, in a sense, that if you keep looking into it, it never ends. It keeps reflecting in on itself. You watch yourself, watch yourself, watch yourself, watch yourself, watch yourself, watching yourself, watch yourself. You do that forever. So that's why it seems like it doesn't exist. But it also changes over time. That was 2,500 years ago. People are more individualistic now. So there is more of an I am there than maybe there was in the past. Although the system that Buddha taught is completely still valid, 100%. But... It's possible that the human soul is hardened a little more and there's a little more of an I am presence there. So basically, you just have to breathe from your abdomen. That's how you write your own gospel. <laughs> What's your own good news, right? What's your own uh, confession about the divine? What's your testimony about truth? Right, what is it? And all the Eastern traditions, they all talk about that lower part of the body, right? The base of the spine, right underneath the navel. If you watch that John Chang video, that's where all the electricity's coming from. And it's weird, you can definitely do it, right? Let's do it right now, let's breathe. And feel the abdomen go out and go in. And there's a way that the breath kind of feels like it's flowing through that center right down there. 
And so that's some sort of weird superpower. I, um, I can tell you that in Qigong and in other systems, like, it's, it's taught in the Kabbalah, too. This is two things I've definitely read. In Qigong and in the Kabbalah, it's taught that for men, there's all sorts of hidden psychic power in your, in your, basically in your genitals, in your testicles. Like, there's all sorts of hidden psychic power there that traditions teach you to conserve in order to use that power for psychic stuff. So there's a lot of different traditions talking about this lower part of the body and it containing all this psychic power. You know, the whole kundalini thing supposed to be right down there in that spot that we're breathing into. So why is it? The abdominal breathing has to do with so much. That's a lot of different traditions and a lot of wild claims about hidden power in the being. I mean... I'll tell you what, when I breathe from my abdomen, I feel like a different person. I feel like a different human being. I mean, it's a whole other level of self-confidence and peacefulness. To me, my whole body relaxes. I feel in the moment. And I feel absorbed by whatever I'm doing and not lost, not distracted. And I don't know if there's ever would be a way to get that from just Western tradition as far as like the mainstream stuff. So maybe modern people have put it together, but I think we owe the sort of Eastern traditions for that. I think that's where it comes from. I mean, I don't know if people were always doing that in Europe, but we know that they must have had something. So here's one of the things that's interesting as far as talking about Christ consciousness and how do we get Christ consciousness. I mean, we don't know what they were doing. We have stuff that says out-of-body travel. We have going up to heaven, out-of-the-body. We have that, but you know, we have people who see the resurrected spirit of Jesus and it teaches them all kind of stuff. And, you know, that's Hermes Trismegistus, like I said earlier. It's this spirit, this sort of it's a part of ourselves but it's also an entity because it's a cosmic being and there's this real obvious dependence on meditation none of this stuff was happening without meditation so the people were definitely meditating but we just don't know we just don't know what the techniques were it's not clear it's not written down anywhere but we do have this really ancient all this ancient eastern stuff that goes back to the same time. And it was a different part of the world, kind of, but it was also going on at the same time, and it was still human beings with the same essential brains. A lot of differences. But it was still human beings from that part of time, from that reality, who were creating spiritual systems. So to me, in order to understand Jesus, you got to go back to the Eastern stuff. You got to get into... Buddhism at the very least, but what I'm starting to get really into is Qigong. I just started studying. It's fantastic. Practicing it right away. It's uh, something I've been looking for forever. I didn't know it. There's going to be more on that. By the way, that explains John Chang. I, I didn't know that, by the way. That um, 
I'm sorry for this ignorance, but I didn't know that Qigong was like esoteric Taoism. And that's what John Chang is clearly doing in that video is he's just an esoteric Taoist doing what, uh, the, he's just a master of Qigong. Yeah, it's obvious. Oof, that was a big one to realize. I was like, oh, wow, I totally missed that because I just didn't, I hadn't studied it. I didn't know its essence. And when, just like a rudimentary study of Qigong, which is all I've done so far, it's just the most basic of overviews. And it's super obvious that the John Chang video is the culmination of of intensive study in that practice. Um, so we don't know what, St. Paul was doing, like what kind of meditations he was doing to leave his body and go to the third heaven. We don't know what he was doing. But there are a lot of theories, right? There's the whole contemplative prayer thing where, I mean, dude, if you go out into the desert or somewhere quiet by yourself and you just repeat a prayer again and again with the idea of entering into this state where you connect with the divine then you're going to enter a sort of hypnagogic state. So that's pretty universal. I mean, all human beings have the ability to slip into this uh, natural visionary state where we're neither sleeping nor awake. We're neither conscious nor unconscious. We're in a true liminal state of possibility. And if we practice concentrating enough, we can remember most of it clearly. And when people get good at this, they become prophets in ancient times. In the modern times as well. So we, we know on a basic level. But then there comes the very fundamental question of, okay, dude, I understand hypnagogic state, all that. But how do we get there? Because, like, dude, I've tried to get into a hypnagogic state. And it's basically impossible to do that without falling asleep. Right? I mean, I feel you. So that's why one thing would be. The I am exercise that we did at the beginning, breathing in, become aware of your body, breathing in, become aware of your feelings, breathing in, become aware of your thoughts, breathing in, become aware that you are aware of these things and try to watch that part of yourself and then stop and just think about what is it that is watching. I'm not saying that's God, like literally, that was a little hyperbolic, but you see what I mean? That's a, that's a, just a technique that I picked up over over time, pieced together from stuff that I've, a lot of different things. But that'll introduce you to some real mysteries, right? And then you have the whole abdominal breathing, which has this weird, freaky effect on me. So just to be clear, abdominal breathing is when you fill up your whole lungs to where your belly sticks out when you breathe in. When you breathe out, your belly goes in. So you should be able to feel in and out, like physically in your body. And if you get it right, there's like a part right below your belly button, right? Right below your belly button, kind of right above your pelvis, but right between your belly button and where your, your lower, lower body really starts. But right at that edge. If you can breathe in a way where you sort of breathe through that part of yourself. So it goes through the base of your spine at the back. And it's right through the point in between where your pelvis really is. And it's like two inches or it's not two inches. It depends on the person. But it's right below your belly button. Every experienced meditator knows that sweet spot that I'm talking about right now. That sweet spot 
that whole thing. That's why the Masonic apron covers that part of the body. That's why that part of the body is sacred. That's why sometimes there's periods of celibacy required in occult training. None of it has to do with being anti-sex. In fact, most esoteric people are extremely sex-positive people in the best possible way. Uh, But there is a thing with this part of the body having a lot of power in it that needs to be harnessed. So there may be times where, like, celibacy might be required, but it's not like a, you know, type of lifelong thing. There just might be a time where you need to do it for uh, esoteric reasons. So... That sort of stuff all goes together with this idea that in your lower body, with this certain type of lower body breathing, and it starts off just getting the belly to go out when you breathe in. And you notice that your posture has to kind of improve for you to do it right. And if you breathe in like that, I'm sure a lot of you already know this, obviously, but let's just share in the happiness of having knowledge. Um, but when you do that, I'm holding that breath full right now. My spine straightens out just like it should be when you do the lotus position. If you're meditating in like a perfect posture, it's going to be when this breath goes. <sighs> Ideally, you want to breathe, breathe slowly through the nose, but I'm just doing this for demonstration. But like that makes your posture perfect. So it's very clear that this is an ancient thing for a reason that breathing into this lower part of your body has a very real effect and here's the rub about this one is you can do it all the time the first one the i am meditation you can't do that all the time but this one you can do whenever wherever and you should one of the things that people have hinted at in many occult texts is the idea that we change our breathing that our breathing method has to shift in order for us to really start to transcend the physical realm and walk down the esoteric path. I think this is one of the keys. Again, I'm not a Mason, so that's why I'm saying this, but uh, I think the Masonic apron is over that part of the body because it's all about harnessing that energy that's down there. And one of the main ways that it's done is by abdominal breathing. So look, one of the secrets of the occult that's not a secret is that your I am is some sort of microcosm of God. Kind of simple, but... It sort of is every religion (laughs) in a nutshell. It's also a thing that is so deep that's like, you know, once I figured that out from all these great teachers, it's one of the things they are all trying to get us to learn. They're, They're all trying to get us to notice. But you can't do that all the time. You can't do that everywhere all the time. Now, this abdominal breathing, yeah, I feel really good. I feel really mystical. I have a lot of energy. I feel like alert in an alpha state. I'm alpha brainwave state. I'm aware, I'm focused, but I'm relaxed. So, to me, that's all kind of Eastern stuff in a way. But if you take that and you, you have those things, then you read... Let's do it. I mean, we always got to return to it. Uh, let me just pull it up. The Gospel of Thomas. Now, if we breathe abdominally, let's do that first before we read the sayings of Thomas. 
Again, that sweet spot below the navel is where you should feel the breath going through. Feel that, right? So breathing abdominally. Now let's read this very weird saying in Thomas. Jesus said, The man old in days will not hesitate to ask a small child, seven days old, about the place of life. And he will live. For many who are first will become last. And they will become one and the same. Now, I can't obviously know how you're feeling at this moment or how you just experienced that at all. But what I would argue is that when we're doing a sort of Eastern meditation technique like that, and then we read something that is a very Christian saying, I think we, could, we can agree that it has a much more potent effect. I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense. On a very surface level, I was thinking about the image. The images of an old man, a man old in days, will not hesitate to ask a small child, seven days old, about the place of life. That's very inspiring. And so, to me, like, you breathe abdominally in this meditative state, this very Eastern meditative state. You read a very Western, or quote-unquote Western, Christian thing, and it has a resonance. It has a deeper meaning. It has a contemplative meaning. It has a, there's a mystery in it that we want to read it again and again in this state. We want to meditate on it. So we're saying, how do we get good at getting into a hypnagogic state? Well, this sort of activity. Abdominal breathing. You can even do this at your computer. You sit at your computer. And you do abdominal breathing. Because a computer chair is usually actually a pretty good chair to meditate in. You might want to sit forward on the chair a little bit. To where you get your both feet flat on the ground. And you can sit straight up like a like an Egyptian statue. Right? But you want to support your own back. Or if your chair doesn't allow you to support your own back. Just sit up straight as you can. But... You meditate in your computer chair. First, pull up the Gospel of Thomas, the Lambdin translation. Gnosis.org for all that for free. It's really good. I, I highly recommend the Lambdin translated by Thomas O. Lambdin. That's the most esoteric sounding one. And then you sit in your chair. And we do some abdominal breathing. Now we know we're breathing in through our nose, into our lungs, but for some reason it feels like the breath is going through the lower abdomen. So you do that, and then you look up at the screen and you read the saying, the man olden days will not hesitate to ask a small child seven days old about the place of life and he will live 
For many who are first will become last, and they will become one and the same. I mean, to talk about this, to try to do an exposition right now, to me would be disservice to what we're getting at here. I mean, the one word I would use to describe this is transcendence. And I don't mean that in a generalized sense. I mean transcendence of your place in life. It's just more of this message of transcending the limitations of categories and labels that are unnecessary between human beings. And not in a superficial sense, we mean in the deepest way. Right? The things that prevent us from truly loving one another. This is what we want to do away with. Not anything that's helpful or any kind of traditions that are good for good for us and that we like and that we do voluntarily. Not any of that sort of thing, but we do have to abandon all the all the ideas that keep us from connecting and being plain and simple with each other. That's just one of the things it says to me, but that's not the meaning of it. You have to determine that. You got to figure it out. This isn't about me becoming immortal. This is about us becoming immortal. Remember, if you can figure out these sayings, you won't taste death. That's what it promises. And Jesus said, whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. So if we want to be eternal, we got to get to work. <laughs> we got some top clocks ticking if you figure it out before you expire. I mean, look, it's a good goal. I like it. I'm on the journey with you. So there's a lot about this saying, but if we address it in a state that's not meditative... It doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the power. And so for me, that is when the thing clicked. It was with this gospel, with this translation years ago. That's where it all started. That's for me, that's where the whole esoteric path started was with that moment where I go, okay, so what you do is you take this Eastern uh, meditative knowledge and you... That's the dogs. They're all right. You take this Eastern meditative knowledge and you combine it with something like Christianity and you get what is a very complete and rich tradition. Because you have all this um, very strange theology that seems so hard to understand. But then when we, we go and we study the Buddha and we get all this meditative knowledge, we get our chi strengthened. We figure out about our life force and we learn that we have to take care of our life force in order to understand spiritual knowledge. And we start taking care of our life force. And all the while, we're under the guidance of the great masters of the East, right? And then we come back, if we're from the West, obviously, and we look at Jesus and we go, Eureka, I understand it now. I understand him now. He's like this. But his context is totally different. What he was dealing with was totally different. 
the reality around him was totally different, so it has this different seeming character, but it's the same thing as this. But yet there's more to it, for me at least, because I was raised in it. So experiencing the gospel of Thomas at the same time as abdominal breathing. You can do it at your computer. You just sit at your computer. You do your abdominal breathing and then you read the gospel of Thomas and you meditate on a saying and you try to figure it out based on what you know. I mean, there's something here you could say about reincarnation. The man old in days will not hesitate to ask a small child seven days about the place of life. I mean, to me, a big, a big uh, thing there is he's about to die and he's about to go back to where the kid just came from. I mean, to me, that's gorgeous. Like, I love it. He knows he's wise and he will live. The man old in days will not hesitate to ask a small child seven days old about the place of life and he will live. He realizes He's going back to the place the kid just came from. I mean, dude, that's some of the coolest stuff I've ever heard. Thank you all for concluding the first episode of Esoteric AF. This is the Akashic One. Infinite Love.